Hello, Real Life family and friends. This is Pastor Tim, and we are in a series on Romans, the book of Romans. And it's just the, one of my favorite books of the Bible. I'm really excited to be doing this with you. And uh, we've had a couple different um, talks already, but today we're going to pick up where we left off last week, which is really kind of in the middle of Romans chapter 1. Uh, but as we get started, I just want to do a quick review. And one of the things I want to challenge you to do, I've been doing this the last two weeks, I'm going to continue to do this with you, is challenge you to get one of these. It's called My Life Journal, Romans edition. We have some of these copies at the church. And what it's filled with is several scriptures from the book of Romans that we you know, people have referred to as the Romans Road, which is really a simple summary of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I'm challenging you and challenging everyone to memorize these verses, uh, and using this tool will really help you do that, so that we are equipped to share that good news, as God pricks our heart to share that with the people around us and throughout our lives. We are the church, and the, the church is the, the means or the... Uh, you know, uh, the, the, the carrier through which God brings the gospel to the world. And so it's, the church isn't a building. It's not a, you know, uh, just an organization. It's, it's you. It's me. We are the witnesses of Jesus, right? We are the carriers of the gospel. Do you know the gospel? Can you share the gospel uh, with someone who doesn't know uh, the gospel. And so that's the point of this, because we're called to be disciples of Jesus. So grab one of these, become a disciple, learn and grow in your faith so that you can reach out and God willing, uh, touch someone's life that'll change eternity, right? Eternity. There's no greater miracle on the earth than to be used by God to bring the good news to someone who receives it. It's just the greatest privilege that we can have. So let's do a quick review. Um, the other thing I want to share with you is uh, about the book of Romans is it's written by the Apostle Paul. And Paul had a radical life change from what I consider from a religious zealot lifestyle to a relationship with God. From a self-righteous um, religious approach to, to God to coming to a faith-based relationship with God. And so this is just, this is a really... Uh, connects with me because I, I kind of had the same type of transition in my life where I was very diligent to try to be the best person I could be, to be the best Christian, uh, Christian I could be, the best pastor I could be, youth pastor, you know, always trying to do all the right things. Uh, but it was really out of trying to earn righteousness or trying to be good enough for God. And uh, God touched my life through the book of Romans years ago and just flipped me upside down. I mean, just totally turned things around. And I, I understood for the first time in my life how much God loves me. And he, wants, he, just, he just loves me and accepts me as I am. And that I trust in Him and that He does the work in me. He does the changes in me as I you know, submit to Him, as I worship Him, as I place my faith in Him. And He'll do the same for you. Um, and so here's what Paul said about himself in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15 and 16. He says, here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. So you see Paul's attitude. He's very humble. He's like, you know, Christ came to save sinners, and I'm the worst of sinners. You know, I was persecuting the church. I was persecuting Jesus. I was doing it all wrong. But he goes on to say, but for that very reason, for that very reason, the reason that I'm the worst, for that reason, I was shown mercy 
so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Basically, Paul's saying, if God can save me, the worst of sinners, he can save anyone. And God saved me so that he would show through my life what he can do, uh, his patience for, for sinners like me. Isn't that a, a pretty cool testimony? Uh, and so a couple other things I want to share with you uh, about review. Last week, we talked about the doctrine of sanctification. And sanctification is uh, the idea that God uh, has called us to be holy, to be called apart, to be separated, separated unto him, separated from evil, and separated from immorality and sin and wickedness and evil. So God has called us apart. Uh, you may remember uh, that phrase or scripture in, in Peter when he writes, we are a royal priesthood, or, or, um, a holy uh, people. You know, we have been called out of darkness, grafted into his kingdom of light. And so this idea that God is pulling us apart, setting us apart from sin, and making us holy. Okay, so sanctification, uh, like we said last week, has two parts. One is our permanent position before God through faith in Jesus is we have been made holy. We are forgiven of all of our sins. We are righteous before God, not because of what we've done, but because we have placed our faith in Jesus and his righteousness has been appropriated unto us and our sin has been appropriated unto him on the cross and he bore it and he paid for it. Hallelujah, okay? But the other side of sanctification is we still got some things to get kind of, you know, worked out, right? We still got an attitude. We still got some issues. We still got some bad thinking. We still got some bad behaviors. We still have some things that are sinful in our lives. And God wants to root those things out, not because, um, you know, we have to in order to please God, but because that's who we are. We're no longer identified by sin. We are now saints in Christ. And so there's this idea of progressive sanctification, getting better, right? Becoming more and more set apart from sin, more and more separated from darkness, more and more into the light, um, walking in fellowship with God, walking in alignment with his ways and his word. And the Bible says that the wages of sin is death, but the wages of righteousness or holiness is life. So that's why God wants you to follow him. That's why God wants you to be holy. So you will be fully alive and prosperous in your life. So any hangups that you have right now, um, you shouldn't be feeling guilty. You should be feeling excited that God wants to say, set you free from that. And your motivation is so that you can be fully alive. You can be fully uh, functional, fully fruitful, and your life can be fully redeemed. You don't have to live as a slave to sin any longer. You can have a new life in him. And so how does that happen? Well, it doesn't happen through us just staring in the mirror, mirror, uh, mirror and giving ourselves a little pep talk and like, come on, Tim, you can do it. You know, it doesn't happen that way. It happens because now we have the Holy Spirit. We have the power of God's presence in our lives to actually help us live a new life. And that's the means through which we can become more holy, right? Progressively, it's through the Holy Spirit. So Jesus says this in John 14, 16, I will ask the Father and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. So in, in uh, NIV, it translates it here as counselor. Um, other translations might say helper. Some might say advocate. 
So who is the Holy Spirit? Is he a counselor, a comforter, a helper, an advocate? Yes. <laughs> He's all those things. It's hard to describe this role that the Holy Spirit holds, but um, it is a legal term. It's as if you are um, going to court and you have your attorney. You have your um, defense attorney, right? The Holy Spirit is the one who comes alongside of us to help us, um, and he uh, defends us against the lies of the enemy, against the lies of sin, and, uh, and against the law, because through Christ we are now forgiven, right? We have a new identity. And the Holy Spirit, his role is to help us be holy. He, his, his job is to help us become who God already sees us to be. All right, let me say that again. God already sees you holy, who he made you to be. And the Holy Spirit is in us to help us realize that, to see that, to become who we already are. So the Holy Spirit isn't slapping us around, beating us up, condemning us for our mistakes. The Holy Spirit is pointing us to the truth. He's called the Spirit of Truth. He said, no, that's not who you are. This is who you are. No, you don't have to do that. This is who God made you to be. This is going to harm you. This is going to bring life to you. Do you see? The Holy Spirit comes alongside of us, gives the power to see the truth and to, and to live that truth that we might be in freedom and full, fullness and fruitfulness. Hallelujah. God is so cool. He's so amazing. And so Jesus also said this in John 14, 26. He said, The Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you, all things, and will remind you of everything I've said to you. So the Holy Spirit's the spirit of truth. He's our comforter. He's our advocate. He's our helper. Uh, he's our counselor. He's our teacher. And he will lead us and teach us into all truth. I mean, it's just awesome. So Titus 2, 11 to 12, Paul writes this to Titus. And he's talking about this process of becoming more like God. And he says, For the grace of God has appeared... That, that offers salvation to all people. Well, that's Jesus, okay? So Jesus is the one who appeared to offer salvation to all people. So Paul is just referring to Jesus here as the grace of God, which Jesus is the grace of God, okay? So Jesus has appeared and he offers salvation to all people. And it says, it teaches us the grace of God or Jesus or the Holy Spirit teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age, while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. You see it over and over again in this passage how, how uh, Paul is saying, look, the grace of God has come not just to forgive us, but to change us, to redeem us, to cleanse us, to purify us, to change our hearts, to make us more like God. And we're going to do this until the day Jesus returns. It's progressive sanctification. So that was kind of a review, but that was new material for you just to keep it fresh, okay? That's what God is wanting to do in your life, my life. So give him something to work with, right? Give him your heart, give him your attitudes, give him your thoughts, give him your opinions, all right? Give him your life. Uh, put your nose into the word of God, ask for him to teach you, ask for him to lead you, and he will lead you into truth, and that truth will set you free. Amen. Amen. This is a lifelong journey. So the same grace of God that saves us in spite of our lack of righteousness also equips us to live a life of righteousness. 
through the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. Okay, that's kind of the summary I want to leave with you. So the Holy Spirit is the presence and power of God to help us be who we already are in God's eyes. All right, let's go back to Romans. We're going to go into some new material now. Romans chapter 1, uh, verses 16 and 17. This is one of the most famous scriptures in all of the Bible. It's, uh, of course, the, uh, it's famous because of the uh, Protestant Reformation through Martin Luther. But it's just also famous because this is kind of the thesis statement Paul is putting out there at the beginning of Romans that will, will kind of dictate the reason, his whole argument for the rest of the book. And, and it's this. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, this is Paul's story, and this is the main point, a righteousness from God, a righteousness from God is revealed a righteousness that is by faith, not by works, not by obedience, but a righteousness is revealed to us in the gospel. And this righteousness from God is by faith. And he goes on to say, from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Wow, this is incredible, right? Paul is saying it's not about um, dotting your I's and crossing your T's. It's not about you becoming a perfect person or earning or deserving righteousness through your deeds and your works and your good, good efforts, but it is by faith in the gospel. And the gospel, of course, is about Christ. So it's faith in Christ. And Paul is saying, this is how one gains righteousness. It's through faith and it's from first to last. What that means is the whole journey of our walk with God is by faith. We don't start with faith and then start doing, depending on works, right? And he talks about that in Galatians as well, later in another letter that he writes. It's from first to last. The whole, the, the whole path of salvation is through faith. We're changed through faith, right? We're set free by faith, by trusting in God, by leaning on Him, by following Him. Not through our own good works, or our own efforts. We are never meant to strive for righteousness. We are meant to trust in God. We are meant to follow Him, to believe in Him. And so we look at this word, and one of the things I want to point out to you is the word believe. It says, the, uh, the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Now, I don't know a lot about Greek, but I did some studying about this word believes. And the tense in which this is in the Greek language is an uh, I think it's like a present participle. And that means that it's an ongoing uh, reality of believing. It would be, if I could kind of explain it this way, it might be said something like this. It's the salvation for the salvation of everyone who is believing and keeps on believing and continues to believe. So it's like faith is a current um, reality for us. It's not, oh yeah, I placed faith in God way back then. No, it's like I began my faith journey way back then and I am still trusting in God today. So the, the salvation comes from an ongoing, believing, trusting relationship in God. Now, I'm not talking about... Um, you know that, oh, wait a minute, you're saying that if I stop 
you know, that, that I'm, not, I'm not saved if I stop believing. I don't really want to get into that idea in this lesson. I want to emphasize, though, that faith is an ongoing lifestyle, and that's a relationship that we have with God. It's not religion. It can, faith can, can become a religious item. It can be like, well, I did that. I did this thing called faith. I placed my faith in Jesus back then, and I did that, and I did that. And that, that's not exa exactly what this concept is about. This is about I began in a continuing today to have a trust relationship in God, in Jesus Christ. That's what faith is. Faith is current. It's alive. And the Bible says the righteous live by faith. They don't vacation with faith. They don't go have faith on the weekends. <laughs> you hear what I'm saying? Faith is a lifestyle. We live by faith. Every day we are, we are trusting in God. That's how we are living. That's how we are alive. That's how we are saved. That's how the gospel has um, its power because we're trusting in him. And if I'm trusting in God, whatever part of the gospel I'm not trusting in, I'm not walking in very well. There's more for me to access. Now, the gospel isn't just that my sins are be, will be forgiven. The gospel is that God wants you to prosper body, soul, and spirit. Jesus came. He cast out demons. He healed the sick. Um, he set the captives free. Uh, he, he, the people's souls prospered. People's bodies were prospering. And of course, their spirits were prospering because they were forgiven of their sin and born again. So the gospel isn't just like, believe in Jesus, say this religious prayer, get, get, uh, get your salvation tidied up, and then go ahead and live the rest of your life. No, that's, that has, that's not even, I mean, that's not at all what the gospel is saying. Gospel is saying that we need, we are designed and built to exist in a trusting relationship with God. And if we're not walking in a trusting relationship with God, we're going to experience death. We're not going to do it right. We're going to, we're going to die. I mean, God is the author of life. He's the sustainer of life. He's the giver of life. And when we leave him, What's the opposite of life? If you leave life, you're, you're walking into death. That's just the bottom line, right? So our relationship with God is all on faith. It's based on faith. And it's ongoing. It's a, it's a lifestyle. So the righteous will live by faith. And, uh, and, and they will because of that, they will also live, right? There'll be life because of that faith. All right. So I want to talk about righteousness for just a minute here. And then we're going to talk about sin today, uh, kind of like the doctrine of sin a little bit. So righteousness is the means of salvation. According to the scriptures, if a person is righteous, then they are right with God. And that's how you're saved. Okay. That's just the bottom line. If you could get something called righteousness before God, then you are right with God. You don't deserve death. You'd be saved. Right? So that's just something, to, a baseline to understand. Righteousness is the key. All right? Now, righteousness means perfect obedience to God's ways. It means perfect alignment with God and all of his ways and all of his truths. Okay? And righteousness produces life. It literally, <clears throat> the wages of righteousness is life, the Bible says in Proverbs. Okay? So if you could be righteous, if you are righteous, you are experiencing life. You can't die if you're perfectly righteous. And, and then you're also right with God. You have 
and, and you're saved, right? That's, that's what you want. Now, Paul is saying there is a righteousness that's available that comes from God, but it's accessed through faith. And so that's what the gospel is. We're going to be looking at it throughout the Bible of Romans. But I want to just describe righteousness a little bit more. Righteousness is not a sliding scale or a passing grade or doing more good than bad. Okay? There, there's some terrible examples that we have in our society that sometimes people equate to biblical concepts like righteousness, and they don't fit at all. But I'm just going to give you some examples, see if you've ever thought these things or heard people talk about them. One, there's this thing in, in uh, education called the bell curve. And, and this bell curve, it, it, it looks like a bell, and you know I don't want to get into a whole lot, but it goes something like this. And these are the... Um, and, and then there's percentages of people and students, like if they take a test... And they grade according to the bell curve, and they say, well, we think that this many students should get this grade, this many students should get this grade, this many students get this grade, this many students get this grade, and these ones get an E, these ones get Ds, these ones get Cs, these ones get Bs, these ones get As. And they literally base people's grades off of the performance of, of everybody around them. It's comparison scale. And I don't know if you've ever heard of uh, uh, someone say this or, or, or not, but have you ever heard someone say, well, at least I'm not as bad as so-and-so? So they're, they're comparing themselves with someone else, kind of like a bell curve and saying, well, I, I'm, I'm, I'm like, they might not be uh, super proud of their effort or maybe they're okay with it. And they're here and they're, they're looking back and saying, well, at least I'm not a D. At least I, I pass. At least I'm not an E, right? I'm better than so-and-so. It's a comparison idea. Well, righteousness does not work that way, right? Righteousness is not determined by how you perform in comparison to other people. You say, yeah, but look at all those bad people over there. Look at what they did. I don't do that. That's not how righteousness works, okay? Another bad example is just grading scale in, in school. In school, um, we teach kids, and we've all been through this too, where we have certain percentages. So instead of the bell curve, we just say, look, if you get 90% or better, you're going to get an A. You know, if you're in the 80 percentile uh, on your score, you're going to get a B and 70 and so on. And then we get down to 60. And if you get 59 or lower, right, that's an E. You fail. But if you can get above that line, you know, you pass, right? Now, I used to be a teacher. I did all this stuff. I understand that. Um, and it works for education and that sort of thing, but it does not work like that for righteousness, okay? There isn't some kind of minimum line that we say, well, if I can just reach this point of goodness, then I pass. So we get to heaven, we stand there, and this is just hypothetical, right? We stand at the, at the throne room of God, and we hold up our report card, and we got a 61, you know, or a 73. Two or an 85 or a 98 or whatever, and we show our report card. Like, Is that good enough? Did I pass? Like somehow our deeds are graded? No, doesn't work that way. Righteousness is not based on a, a minimum line that you need to, uh, you know, reach. You can't just be good enough to be righteous. The third example I want to give you is a scale, and some some people think this. Um, some people think, well, if I just do more good than bad, and it's kind of like this, this like scale, I don't know how to draw it, but you know, some kind of a, a scale like this, and you, you put your good deeds here, or your bad deeds, and you, you're looking for you know, just more good than bad, 
so that the, the scale tips in your favor, right? So here's the good, here's the bad. And we say, well, I'm not a perfect person. Nobody's perfect, but I think I'm a pretty good person. I think I do more good than bad. And so some people think, well, you know, I'm, I should be okay. God should be okay with me because of my effort. I'm, I'm pretty much a good person. And they say, you know, I do more good than bad. At least I hope I do. But that's not how righteousness works either. Okay? So these are concepts that, that I've heard people talk about before. Or at least we think these things. Maybe we don't really articulate them quite like that. But I think you can relate to those ideas. But just to give you clarity on this, because righteousness before God really is a legal matter. And it is this. You are either righteous or you're not. You're either 100% obedience to God and His ways or you're not. There is no grade. There's no scale. There's no comparison with other people. You either have sinned or you have not sinned at all. If you sinned one time at all, you are not righteous, according to the definition of righteousness. Therefore, Paul says this in Romans 3.23, which we memorized, and we're memorizing one of those verses, right? It says, for the wages of sin, or this is, I'm sorry, this is, yeah, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Everybody's done it. No one is righteous. This is just a fact. No one is righteous. And so Paul's like, but there's good news. You're not righteous, but there's a way to be righteous. And it's not the way that you think. It's not the way that we've been talking about for hundreds of years about get your act together and please God and stop doing this and start doing this. It is going to be through faith in Jesus. Okay? So that's what righteousness is. And uh, that's why this is good news because none of us are righteous, but we can be by faith in Christ. So Paul is going to go on now in the next two chapters and talk about sin. He's going to talk about how we are unrighteous, how we are all in this same position and we are in big trouble. All right? We're in big trouble because we're not righteous and we need to be if we're going to be saved. And so part of salvation is for people to realize their true condition before God. We need to understand that we are sinners, that we have fallen, and that we are in dire straits. We are in big trouble. We are sentenced to death. We need to understand that for us to then see our need for God's grace and mercy. So many people are still playing this game. They think, well, I'm better than most people. Well, I'm doing pretty good. And I, I, should, be, I should be okay because they're comparing themselves to other people. They're comparing themselves to some other standard that they've created in their head. And they're thinking that they're, because they're more good than bad, that they should be, they should be fine. But that's not how it works. And, and this is why the next two chapters are so important for us to realize, wow, no matter how good I think I, I am, no matter how hard I've tried to be good, that has never been the point. Because I cannot be good enough to be righteous. Therefore, Whoa, I need God. I need a Savior. I need to put my trust in Him. That's the only uh, reasonable uh, conclusion that one makes when they understand their true condition before God. Right? So that's what Paul is doing here. The gospel starts with us realizing we're sinners. 
Uh, how can you have good news if, if you don't need good news? I mean, but once you start to talk about sin and everybody comes to the conclusion, oh yeah, that's me. I'm the worst of sinners. I'm a sinner. I'm fallen. I am a dead man. Help, what do I do? Now good news comes and we're ready to hear it. We're ready to receive it. We're ready to trust in Jesus. So that's why the first verse of our Romans road is that verse there, Romans 3.23. For all have sinned. All fall short of the glory of God. We have sinned and we're falling short right now. We continue to fall short. We cannot do anything about it. No matter how hard we try, no matter how long we try, you know, it, we are going to constantly fall short. That's our condition. And then Romans 6, 23, the next verse that we were memorizing last week, says, For the wages of sin, and the problem here is that the wages of sin is death. That's our sentence. We, we feel it. We see it all around us in this broken world. And, and sin produces death. Not just physical death, relational death, financial death, soul death, mind death, depravity, twistedness, just all kinds of stuff that just falls apart, right? So sin causes death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the good news. That's why these scriptures are in a certain order, so that we can walk through the gospel uh, with one another and celebrate that good news. So before we go any farther, I want to read um, or address this little idea that might be confusing to you in this one passage where it says in verse seven, uh, 16, he's talking about how the I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. I want to touch on that just for a second. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. What in the world is Paul talking about? Well, Paul is a Jew, but he's called to the uh, Gentiles. And he's trying to make a connection, not just for the Jews, but mostly to the Gentiles, of that this gospel is also for you. And he's talking to his Jewish buddies and saying, look, this gospel isn't just for you. It's also for the Gentiles. Now, we know that today, but back here, back then, this was a big mind shift. This is a big deal. And what Paul is saying is that Jesus says this in John 4, 22, salvation is from the Jews. Now, the law, the Jews had the law, the Torah, the covenants, the temple worship, the priesthood. They had all the messianic prophecies, and they all came to the Jews, right? Jesus is a Jew. Uh, the Messiah came through the Jews. So salvation comes to the Jews. But these privileges that the Jews had, all of these, uh, this relationship, connection with God and this word and the Messiah and all of that, were, were not due to the Jews' superiority or merit, but rather for the Jews to be the vessel to convey uh, this gospel to the rest of the world. First and foremost, through experiencing this relationship with God, and secondly, then proclaiming it to the world. That's why God picked the Jews, and that's why now today God has chosen to raise up the church, you and me. First and foremost, to experience the salvation of God in your life, and then to, to, to proclaim it, to proclaim it, to receive it and proclaim it. That's the calling of God. It doesn't stop with you. The gospel shouldn't stop with your transformation, your salvation, your restoration, your freedom. It needs to do that in you and then go out through you as you proclaim it and witness to those around you, the world, 
of who God is and what he's done for you. And it was the same that God chose a people, the Jews, to reveal himself to so he could reveal himself through. So at first he does it to, and then he wants to do it through. And God wants to do something to you so that you can then, he can work through you. <laughs> Isn't that awesome? So God chose a man named Abram. We call him Abraham. In Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, it says, The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. So God called him, and he gave him a promise. And he says, I will, well, he gave him seven promises, seven implied promises here. I'm going to read for you. One, I will make you into a great nation. Two, I will bless you. Three, I will make your name great. Four, and you will be a blessing. Five, I will bless those who bless you. Six, whoever curses you, I will curse. Seven, and all peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. So God calls a man, and Abraham follows God. And Abraham has Isaac, and Isaac follows God. And the covenant promise is passed on to Isaac. And Isaac has Jacob. And the covenant promises are passed on to Jacob. And Jacob meets God too and has a personal connection with God. And then Jacob has 12 sons. And these 12 sons become the tribes of Israel. And uh, God raises up another man, Moses, to lead this, this people out of bondage into the promised land. And God gives Moses to the people uh, the covenant, the, the Torah, the scriptures. And God begins to teach the people how to be a people, to follow in him. God raises up a nation. This nation becomes the Jewish nation or Israel and so on and so on. And out of that nation eventually comes from the line of David, as I mentioned last week, from the line of David, the Messiah, the promised one, Jesus, who was a Jew, who was born fully human, but also fully God, and who came among us and dwelled among us, full of grace and truth, and lived a sinless life. And through Jesus, the promise here to Abram, from way back, you know, thousands of years ago, to the day that Jesus hung on a cross, was fulfilled, and through Jesus, through Jesus, all the peoples on the earth will be blessed. Isn't that awesome? So you see, God was unfolding his story through a person, through a people, through a nation, and it all has come to fulfillment through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. But it wasn't meant to just be a Jewish thing. The Jews, although all of this is happening through the Jewish line, God was doing something in them to do something through them that they would be a blessing and the gospel would spread to all the world. And this was an amazing revelation for the early church, for, for Peter, who was a Jew uh, and was called to the, the Jews. He had a, uh, an encounter with an angel of God to help him see that the gospel wasn't just for the Jews, but for the Gentiles. You can read about that in the book of Acts when he went to Cornelius' house, and he felt like he shouldn't even be there because Cornelius and his family were Gentiles. But Paul, but Paul had an encounter with Jesus himself, and Jesus called Paul to take the gospel to the Gentiles. We read about that a couple weeks ago. And so here's Paul saying, look, the gospel first comes to the Jews and then the Gentiles. So Paul would always take the gospel into a new town and would first present it in the synagogue to the Jews 
And then they would, someone, someone would receive, someone would reject it, but then he would turn to the Gentiles and he'd start preaching the gospel to the Gentiles in that area. He always went first to the Jews, then to the Gentiles. That's what that means. That the gospel has first come through the Jews, but it's supposed to go through them to the rest of the world. Okay? Now, going back to sin, I want to read a little bit more of this chapter. So we're going to read Romans 1, 18 uh, uh, through 27. Okay? It says, Now the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. Without belaboring this too much, basically, the Scriptures teach us that regardless of what anybody else says, every single person has had and has been given a consciousness of God. Through His divine uh, power and His divine nature, through the creation of this world, there is a consciousness in every person that there is a God, that He exists. Now, what they do with that, uh, it varies. They, many people respond to that, and some people reject that. And then that has an effect on their thinking and, and their life. But every person, no one has an excuse. Every person is built with a consciousness of God and eternity. Now, that's why the Bible says, Without excuse. Men are without excuse. Mankind is without excuse. There is going to be an accountability for every human being because God has revealed himself to every human being. Now, whether they accept his leadership or they reject his lordship, that's on them. And that's why this is pretty intense, okay? So Paul goes on to say, For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile. And their foolish hearts were darkened. So their thinking is being uh, twisted. Their hearts are being darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. So throughout history, you can see this. There's all kinds of different forms of religion, all kinds of different forms of idols. People start worshiping snakes and birds and animals and rocks and trees and moon and stars and, and, and sun. And they, they, they are worshiping inanimate objects or, or created objects like animals uh, instead of the one true God. Verse 24, Therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity, for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Amen. What a sad state. What a sad exchange. To exchange truth for lie, to exchange the worship of God for the worship of created things, right? Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. So we see the degrading of humanity because of the hardening of the heart against God. 
When we harden our heart against God, we no longer uh, have the fear of God, and, and therefore we reject God's truths, we reject God's laws that he created, for our benefit, by the way. And when we, when we go against God, we go against his laws, we're going against life itself. Our minds become depraved, our hearts become darkened and hardened. We become more twisted and sin begins to infect us even more. I mean, we become slaves to sin. We become in, infected and infested with sin and all kinds of perversion and twisted thinking and twisted actions begin to take over. And that's what Paul is saying has happened in our world. And we know that's happened. There's things that it's hard to believe that, that are being done on this earth. And uh, it's just unimaginable. But it starts with the rejection of God, the hardening of a heart, and the turning away from God's laws and uh, his principles that he gave us for life. We see this. We don't need to belabor that anymore. But I do want to say this, um, that the wrath of God, um, says in verse 18, is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. So somewhat of the doctrine of sin would be this, or maybe, uh, yeah, we'll talk about it like this. The wrath of God is being revealed. Now, the wrath of God is kind of like this. God allows sin to run its course. I put it this way. The results of sin really becomes an act of God's judgment because sin has within itself built-in judgment, right? If, if righteousness means to be walking right with God, walking in alignment with His ways, which are all going to produce life for us. Let's be clear about that. This isn't like God has these, you know, crazy rules that just kind of restrict us from having fun or restrict us from really experiencing uh, a great life or something. No, no, that's, that is garbage thinking. All of God's laws, if you want to call them that way, or instructions or directions, are to bring life and fullness to us, okay? So when we leave that path, when we walk away from that, we are then, by default, leaving life and we're entering into a death realm, a brokenness realm. So sin is leaving that path. And when we leave that path, there's already built-in judgment upon that decision. Not that God is slapping us and striking us because he's mad at us, but because we left the protection of life. We left the path of righteousness. We chose to leave that path, and now we're in this realm of death and brokenness and evil and darkness. So all sin, that's why Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death. It's not like, it's kind of like this. Let's just use a simple example. Um, let's say, I, I remember doing this. Um, I was too little to really understand it. But if you have a hot stove, let's say you're cooking and the stove is hot, and you say to your kids, hey, everybody, I just got done cooking meal. The stove is hot. Don't touch the stove, right? Don't touch the stove. And little Johnny or whatever says, oh, I don't like that rule. Why can't I touch stove? I should be able to do what I want to do. All right? So he goes up there and touches the stove. What happens? He gets burned. It's not like his mom uh, punished him. He said, you touch the stove? Come over here. And lights a, lights a torch and starts burning him. She's not going to do that. It's crazy. 
But what she's doing is saying, look, here's a boundary. This is unhealthy for you. Don't do this. If you do this, you're going to get hurt. Don't do it, okay? Oh, well, I don't like that rule. I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to touch the stove. And so she, he touches the stove. He gets hurt. He gets burned. And, and sometimes I think that's how some people think God is. Like somehow he has these rules. And if we break his rules, God gets us. I'm like, no, he doesn't. Sin gets us. Sin has built-in judgment. The wrath of God is on sin because, because you're, it's just by default leaving the, the path of life. And so we don't, we're not serving an angry God. We're serving a loving God. God doesn't want you to get hurt. God doesn't want you to be uh, you know, punished. But sin it is, is built in wrath of God. The judgment of God is on sin. I hope that makes a little bit of sense for you. And so God wants us to come out of sin. We're the ones that are in sin. We're the ones that left. We're the ones that died. God said, don't do this or you'll die. Ah, oh, I don't like that rule. I'm going to do it. And then we go do it and we die. You know, and so God says, now I'm going to give a way for you to come back. So everything that God is doing is trying to restore us and bring us back. He's not out slapping people around, striking people with lightning, punishing people, tripping people, giving people flat tires. I, that's not, you know, God's not doing that. That's the realm of sin. And so that's why Jesus came to set us free from sin, to pull us out of sin, to take us out of that kingdom of darkness and put us into the kingdom of light. And so that's why it's good news. This isn't religion. This is a relationship. This is someone who loves you. This is who God is. But this is how sin works. This is the doctrine of sin. The wages of sin is death. Sin isn't just, um, uh, it's not like, oh, we sin and we're like, oh, I hope God doesn't get me for that. Sin is already getting you for that. That's my point. Sin is already getting you. Every time that we sin, we are, we are stepping into the realm of death and brokenness and pain and hurt. And God has given us a chance and a, and a path to come out of that. Hallelujah. So sin takes us away from God. We become slaves to sin. We become hijacked by our evil desires. And sin distorts and changes us into these sin-infested beings. And so I want to kind of give you a picture of kind of how I see it. With God and His truth, the Bible says, like say the Torah, and let's just say uh, this circle represents the Torah. The Torah is let's just say it's the Bible, okay? And this is a Hebrew word that means, uh, it's translated often in the Bible as law, God's law or God's you know, ways, but really it's better translated as teaching or instructions or direction. And I like to think of it as the bullseye for life. Like if you want life, then you want to live in the bullseye. You want to live according to Torah, Torah, God, his ways. This is the bullseye for life. So this right here is life. And this is where God is. God is right here, the bullseye, right? And in God, there's life here. There's light here. There's love. There's uh, purity. There's fruitfulness. There's peace. And this is the bullseye for life. God's instructions God's directions, this right here, the Word of God, if I can live according to the Word of God, which is Jesus, then I'm going to experience life. I'm hitting the bullseye. All right? And now sin 
means to miss the target. So this is the target and I miss it, I'm over here. Here's sin, right here. Here's sin. And when I sin, I'm missing the target, I'm leaving the space, I'm leaving life, I'm leaving light, I'm leaving love, I'm leaving freedom, I'm leaving purity, I'm leaving peace, I'm leaving fruitfulness, I'm entering fear, I'm entering poverty, I'm entering brokenness, I'm entering death and darkness and pain and evil and all of these things. This is where I'm entering. This is where sin is. This is where this takes me. This is the effects of sin right here. And that's the doctrine of sin. Missing the target is this realm. Hitting the target is this. This is the Word of God. This is the truth of God. This is God's Holy Spirit is saying, this is who you are. This is your home. This is your citizenship. This is where you belong. This is where you live. This is how you prosper. Okay, right here. And when we don't trust God and we go out of this, we're entering into this realm. And so the judgment of God is already on sin itself. That's why we have the Holy Spirit to pull us out of this and to keep us into this. More and more, we want to grow in the ability to trust and lead or uh, follow the leading of the Holy Spirit so we can live here. All right? I hope that really blesses you and encourages you. Romans 1.25 says, They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They worshiped created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. And so sin spirals into all kinds of horrible things. I'm going to just finish the rest of the chapter. There's only a couple of verses. In verse 28, Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They're senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. And that's what someone with a depraved mind does. They celebrate evil. They approve of others doing evil and inventing ways to do new evil. It's such a realm of depravity and fallenness and brokenness and evil. And even for the worst of sinners, Paul says, there is a good news. There is a hope because there is a righteousness that's available that we could not get on our own, but we could cross over from death to life by faith in Jesus Christ and have a new life in Him. Hallelujah. Cross over today. Place your faith in Jesus today. I hope this isn't discouraging to you. I want to give you one final verse that will encourage you and see why, um, how much God loves us and how we can actually live in this space more and more. Hebrews 13, 20 and 21. One of my favorite verses, and it says, Now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, may he equip you 
with everything good for doing his will, and may he work in us, right here, what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs glory and honor forever and ever. Do you see that? May he equip you, and may he work in us. So it's God who's equipping, and it's God who's working in us if we're putting our faith in him. It's, the pressure isn't on you to get your act together. The, the onus is on you to trust in God, to place your faith in Him, and to say, God, I thank you that you are equipping me today with everything good for doing your will. And you are working in me, into me, what's pleasing to you through Jesus Christ. My faith is in you, Jesus. Well, today I want to pray a prayer. And if you haven't um, given your life to Jesus, if you haven't trusted in Him, and today you see why you need to, then pray this prayer with me and you can begin your faith journey with him. Let's say this together. Say, Jesus, today I see. I see my need for you and I place my trust in you today for the forgiveness of my sins, for my salvation. I place my faith in you and I surrender my whole life into your hands. I'm all yours. In your name I pray, and in your name I trust. Amen. Amen. Well, hallelujah. You need to keep growing in your faith, reading the Word, getting into a church, and keep discovering who you really are through the help of the Holy Spirit. So now let me uh, leave you with this. I'll, I'll bless you and continue to encourage you to get one of these booklets, to memorize the gospel so that you can share this good news with other people. May God work it in you so he can work it through you to those around you. And now may the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. And the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace in his name. Amen. Amen. I love you. God loves you. Uh, I hope you're doing great. We'll see you soon.